This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of D.A. Pennebaker. Rest in peace. Episode 76 of See Here Podcast. We're very, very excited. First of all, I have over in Bath, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. Oh, I, I said that into a glass. Could you hear my echo there? We could. <laughs> Sorry. If I was a filmmaker, I'd need to be getting my sound editor onto that. Yeah, I apologise. Sorry. Over in Brantford, Ontario, we have Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy, howdy. We have a special guest who's making a second appearance on the show. We would have thought he would have learnt better from his first time, but he likes us so much he's come back for a second time. At least we're telling ourselves that. Over in LA, I nearly said New York because you're very New York, but over in LA, we have Mr. Alan Arkush. Rock and roller. Making a second appearance on C here. Welcome back, sir. Thank you very much. It was the first one was fun and and when you told me what the topic was, I thought, okay, this is one of my hobbies, is collecting these. We figured that that would tempt you back. Yes, and also one of the things that we often do at my house is I'll make dinner and I'll have a lot of friends around who are in the music business, were or worked at the rock and roll theaters that I worked at or on movies, and we have a night where we'll pick an artist and we'll just run film clips. And wow. it's sort of like a, a live mix of things. A video jukebox. Exactly, exactly. Can you create a video jukebox for us? I would love to do that. I think it would be really fun to do video mixes. I don't know if you guys can see... Back here, all these drawers, the top drawers here are full of cassette mixes. Yeah, I'll show you. To the listening audience, we're getting a glimpse into the den of Eleanor. So I have about 300 of these cassette mixes. And about 10 years ago, during an actor's like maybe more than that, uh, my wife talked me into, thank God, into converting them all to digital files. From 1976 to to 2008, three, I made several cassette mixes a year, or certainly one or two every birthday. And then every wow. day, that's my own personal music diary. Why? And so now they're all on digital files, and I do them now on iTunes. So the wow. idea of doing these mixes came from when I was a DJ in college, and I didn't have any format except what I wanted. So I would blend all my right. music, and that was like what FM was. And right. So you recorded your shows? No, I didn't. Uh, that'd be another piece of history. One aspect, though, like for younger generations, that they can't remember what it was like to make that mix cassette. That was right. one of the greatest things, I think, that generation, for us, to be able to make a, that perfect mix cassette, especially for the girl that you wanted to woo. You know, yeah. that one girl that you, you wanted to pull, and you wanted that perfect side A 
and that perfect side B, and yes. the J card just had to be just right, and oh yeah, like all of it. And it's, it's a lot of work that went into them as well, because it would take to fill up a 90-minute tape. It was like three, four hours. And you have yeah. to come up with the songs, you have to put them, you know, you have to finger hovering over the pause button and yeah. doing all yeah. that kind of stuff. I, I back yeah. up the on my Technics turntable, and if you made a mistake, it was analog, so you had to go back and fix it. That's my teenage years right there. That's how you it's all about teenage teen. years. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> we're all old so where were we? I completely <laughs> diverted the topic. We actually haven't even announced the topic to the listening audience, although if they've downloaded this, I will see the title there, but let's be official. We've invited you, Alan, to come back and talk about the black art that is concert movies. We want to talk a little bit about the history. We want to talk about your involvement with concert films or concert sequences and this is something which I very rarely see articles or on any other podcast hear people talking about concert films as I don't know if you'd call it a genre but as a topic unto itself people might talk about an individual film like The Last Waltz on a podcast but We've never heard anyone, at least I've certainly never heard anyone on a podcast talk about concert films as a thing unto themselves. So before we go down that road, we wanted to say congratulations. We just heard the news through the social medias that Kino Lorber's finally getting to release Get Crazy. And this is something that you actually alluded to the last time that we spoke, that it was going to get a release. Now you can get everything you ever wanted in a movie, in one movie. You can get high. Get low. Get flip. Get a glow. Get hot. Get bizarre. Get a plane. Get a car. Get out. Get in. Get religion. Get sin. Get caressed. Get undressed. Get molested. Get arrested. Evening officer. But most of all, get crazy! Oh my God, yes. Well, Kino Lorber, well, when the movie was made, there was no deal for video. And if you watch my trailer from hell about Get Crazy, it explains all about the nefarious goings-on of the producers who wanted the, the movie to fail so they could take a tax loss so they could make money. So there was never any effort to give it a good distribution. Over the years, it's not been seen. There's just some bootlegs around, and there's a couple 35-millimeter prints, one of which I believe is owned by Quentin Tarantino. It has run at the New Beverly in some places, and various times people have tried to make a deal, and they could not find the elements, the um, sound and the picture elements in the various labs because the movie was sold from one distributor to another. And finally, Kino Lorber got into it. Every time I took a meeting of someone that had video distribution, I'd bring it up. And they found the elements and then Kino Lorber started going to work and getting the legal things all together because it's wall-to-wall music. You know, and the whole thing, there's very little score. It's all like a mix. I had to really keep quiet and not say a word about this. But it came through, and so uh, we're going to have a meeting and talk about DVD extras. or It's actually on Blu-ray, Blu-ray extras and so forth. And I'm really glad it's happening. I'm really glad that the audience will be able to watch it in stereo. Will there ever be like a, a vinyl? 
vinyl soundtrack re-release with the Blu-ray, or is that a possibility, or no? Well, I the, the soundtrack album was on a subsidiary of Motown. I have a copy of it. I'll lend it to you. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, please, don't kid. We want it. You can make a cassette recording of it and send it to us. No, I, I, I just wondered, because when a lot of classic cult stuff gets re-released, they actually go out and they re-release the soundtracks on you know collector's vinyl, because there's that market as well. Listen, if a lot of people buy the, the Blu-ray, whoever owns the music soundtrack is going to say, I can make some money, you know? Yeah, yeah. And will you be lining up any of the cast or any of the yeah. crew to be doing extras? I've sent out to everyone. I'm still friends with the editors and so forth. So they've all been sending me photos and stuff from their collection. Wow, and that's great. I'd love to hear what Malcolm McDowell has to say, like as a, as a cast member. Here's what Malcolm said in an interview once. He and I did a panel for the movie and they asked him why... They said, why did you choose, with your background, to play a rock star character named Reggie Wanker? (laughs) (laughs) And Malcolm in his Uh, best mouth voice says, it's a very short distance between Reggie Wanker and Hamlet. And and very rarely traveled. (laughs) (laughs) I am the victor and I love to hear the crowd roar. It was a joy to, to sit next to Malcolm. And so tell oh, me yeah. about Stanley and tell me about Lindsay. He's a guy, it seems like he doesn't take himself seriously in any way. No, like, it just very, seems like he, he was on Heroes and that was fun. And so I've, I've worked with him several times. Get Crazy was based on my years at the Fillmore East. There is, if someone's interested in seeing somewhat like the Fillmore East was like, this is a bootleg VHS of a, of a special Ooh. called Welcome to the Fillmore East. I book what I think should be heard and uh, what I hope the public will also like. You can't book yeah, something One thing I do that you like that you know the public will not eat. So you have to be concerned with draw. And that's, that's the hang up in booking talent. Really. Like, you cannot just yeah, yeah. look at an act and, and say, this is good and I'll book it. Out of it. That was on, made on PBS, but it's on YouTube. Oh, wow. Okay. It's called Welcome to the Fillmore East. It has the staff getting ready for a show. It has one song from each band in the show, The Birds, Van Morrison, I think the Allman Brothers. I don't remember who else. It kind of shows you what the place looked like. Wow. We, we did it in September of 1970 what I had been watching in prep for this conversation until I didn't realize it was actually Fillmore West was that film um, probably a good bookend for that was uh, Final Days of Fillmore. Right. Yes. You get a really good idea of what Bill was like. The biography of Bill is very, very good. So one thing I do want to say to all the listeners, you better get out a pad and paper here, you know, (laughs) you're going to be writing stuff down. We're going to be giving some homework. Yeah, I I expect some essay questions here. (laughs) So just to start this off, Alan, as I said at the beginning, we believe that the whole notion of concert films seems to be ignored overall as a genre, at least as far as, you know, interviews that I've heard or, or podcasts that I've listened to. wanted to start off with asking from a filmmaker's perspective, as well as a keen right. film lover, 
what would make a good concert film? It sounds like an obvious question to ask, but I guess it seems that it's more to it than just watching a great band be on fire. There's something about what the director has to pull off to make it filmically watchable. That's great. I I have shot fictional you know i've shot the temptations miniseries i directed Mm. in sport and when i'm shooting a concert scene or people singing i always make sure that the story doesn't stop the scene acts like an action scene in an action movie that conflict gets resolved that there is a connection made with the camera and that's what i did on the temptations and that's what i did all my episodes of fame and rock and roll high school so that's a premise of that so a concert film should have a director or a vision that had presents a story or a place that you are going to and that's its overall theme that's the best of them it should not merely be a recording although some of them are okay and the thing that's the ultimate sin of concert films is overcutting just cut 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 and so you present a point of view and it shows you significance of the event and most important of all it presents you with the connections that are being made on stage by the musicians where the camera is placed and where the lighting is and what's going on in the choice of shots tells you how this music is made it informs it and that's the hardest thing of all to get that across so probably the concert film that is the granddaddy of them all because it is sociologically interesting and the music is great is a jazz one called jazz on a summer's day ladies and gentlemen felonious monk Newport Jazz Festival and it took jazz seriously you know it took black music seriously it took representation of blacks as they really are and so you had them on Ed Sullivan you had black artists on rock movies of the 50s because Chuck Berry's in this but this is a lot of college white people and middle class blacks watching what's essentially an African-American art form jazz And that's the story. And the artists are great. Anita O'Day is fantastic in it. Louis Armstrong is great in it. And so this is the one that everyone goes back to. Okay. Let's let's do a little chronology here, okay? February 9th, 1964. Multiple choice. Yeah. Anyone know what that means? Okay. I don't. Morris? <laughs> okay. You've all heard the Big Bang Theory that the universe sure. was created, created on February 9th, 1964, when the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. Ed oh. Sullivan, yeah. Right? And so when that happened, it set off a reverberations that didn't stop. Not just right. because it's the beginning of defining the, um, the generation gap, but it showed a bunch of people that you can make money off rock and roll. You know, and all the things, how we all connected to it. Music on stage, but mostly the people who showed you music on stage or film live concerts had very little sympathy for the music. 
They had mm-hmm. no idea what it was about. They just put it in front and were appalled. If, if a camera can be appalled uh, watching it. You know, you look at all those rock movies. So this group of people got together and said, let's make a lot of money on a rock concert. And they filmed the Tammy show. Tammy show. Yeah. yeah. Boys singing Surfer Girl, I Get Around, Little Old Lady from Pasadena, and Surfing USA. The Tammy Show is the mom and pop. This is where this birthday, you know. The people on the Tammy Show are Beach Boys, Chuck Berry, the Barbarians, they're singing Mulkey, Marvin Gaye, who is terrific, Leslie Gore, who was a, probably at the time the biggest selling artist, Jan and Dean, Billy J. Kramer, Smokey Robinson, and the Miracles just tear it up. The Supremes, the Rolling Stones, but the show was a like a knockdown fight. It's like a heavyweight fight because one guy got up there and delivered one punch and the show was over. It was James Brown. So James Brown's set in the Tammy show is for the ages. It's his sequence that they use in the commitments, isn't it? Yes. From the Tammy show. The first time he had appeared before such an all-white audience. There's lots of legends about who was going to go on last, whether it was him or the Stones and so forth. But either go to YouTube and find Tammy Show James Brown or rent the Tammy Show because these are all these artists and they're young. The very beginning of the film has Chuck Berry. And I mean, do you see that as maybe a moment of disrespect? Just putting someone who we consider so legendary would get you out of the way and then we're going to put on all the newer musicians. What was the perspective? I remember when I first started listening to Murray the K radio station in New York and listening to doo-wop music, he would play oldies. It's absurd. How could they be oldies? Rock and roll was only five years old. So there's no perspective. But speaking of Chuck Berry, I forgot to include in my list here the the concert, uh, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, right. This is a 73 when I went to sell it, they only wanted to give me $3,000 for it. And it was worth 10. This is the 77 I bought in California. It had all goofed up. $4,000? No. None of them wanted to give me what I wanted for. So they sat here. I'll let them sit 20 years. And then I'll sell them to you $50,000. The whole world knows the music. Nobody knows the man. That is a terrific Chuck Berry movie, and it's a terrific music movie. Let's put that on the list. So so now this set the bar. This is what it is. There's an art to this, which meant that the people who made the money, the people in the asylum, the ones responsible for the sex, drugs, and rock and roll decided we should put on our own concerts. And that's the Monterey Pop Festival. We're really nervous, but we love you all, man, because this is very groovy, man. Monterey is very groovy, man. This, this, is, this is something, man. This is, this is our generation, man. All you people, are, we're all together, man. It's groovy. Studying the topic, you go to Monterey Pop. The performances of Janis Joplin, this was Big Brother and the Holding Company. This is what brought her Airplane. to the world. Yes, the airplane is really, really good. The Who are yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Right, Jimi right. Hendrix 
is unbelievable and he does wild thing and he sets his guitar on fire and then fucks it. So um, <laughs> that pretty much sums up everything your parents were afraid of. <laughs> That's it in one nutshell. And yeah. then Otis Redding. Just two, three years before, that would have been unimaginable. Oh, yeah. And remember, from there, Jimmy went out on his first American concert. He went on his first American tour. He was the opening act. All right, everyone sit down and get ready for this. The monkey. Yes. <laughs> he yes. got pulled off the tour because he offended all the moms. <laughs> I recommend the Criterion box set of this. Because yeah, I have that. It's beautiful. Yeah, so yeah, seen, yeah. If you said the air, there's lots of rehearsals and oh, yeah. lots of, of other sets, and it has almost the complete Jimi Hendrix performance and almost <laughs> the complete Otis Redding performance. And what you see, and what makes it a great concert film, is that you see something that's just forming. You're seeing rock just forming. And that means all these bands are the same age. Some are drops out of college, whatever, and they are all are more interested in the music than anything else. So they look to the audience somewhat, not like it is today where it's always, but looking at each other. And they were all going through the same struggle. They were trying to get their live recording, their live feel on their album. That mm -hmm. was the big issue in the mid-60s with all these bands who were in San Francisco or the British Sound or whatever. They were playing in clubs. This was the best sound system they'd ever played on. I want to draw your attention to one other thing about this. It's Jimi Hendrix playing like a Rolling Stone in it. This is Jimi Hendrix's first American performance as Jimi Hendrix. And he is sensational, his virtuosity. And what kills me about it is he's chewing gum. <laughs> right. Well, he's yeah. playing. All right. That says it all. That's come. So Monterey Pop is next. And of course, this is a special edition here of Woodstock. And it's got a little fringe around here. I, yeah, I was yeah. told that this fringe came from David Crosby's jacket. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if that's true because I don't know how many of these they sold. But the festival was born, if rock concert films were born already, this is the adolescent. You know? Right. For those of you who have forgotten, for those of you who haven't forgotten, and for those of you who never knew. By the time we got to Woodstock. Woodstock, an incredible film about an incredible event, is back. It's my favorite pieces of all time are on that. It's basically oh. 10 years after in Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, Just amazing, those, all yeah. All those performances, okay, man. Like, Everyone name their favorite performances from it. The Who. Who hated it? I like 10 years after, and I've I got to say it, I like Shannon as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nothing wrong with that. Great. I, I'm a little prejudiced in that I have seen 10 years after at least 15 times. Uh -huh. and if I oh, going, man. The ones that really get me is Richie Havens, because oh, yeah. he wasn't supposed to go on then. He didn't have his band. He had to open the festival. And sometimes people are called to greatness. And Richie Havens was called to greatness. And he stepped he, up, yeah. He really stepped up. And for sheer rock dementia and what it means to be transported and have an out-of-body experience, a little help from my friends with Joe Cocker. Oh, yeah, sure, oh, yeah. yeah. I understand a word he says. It's <laughs> all just one shot, and he keeps bobbing out of the frame. Also, I love Santana. I love the full one because they smash I don't it. even think Joe understood what he was saying. <laughs> Alan, have you seen this, Catch My Soul? I know. What is it? We actually discussed this film on the podcast a couple of years ago, but 
I bring this up because it was made in 1974, directed by um, Patrick McGowan, who seemed to have a real thing for Othello. He'd done a great film in England called All Night Long. Yes, I love that movie. So he, he was so obsessed with Othello, he basically, well, this was made into a stage musical, but then he made the film basically sort of taking the story of Othello and placing it on a hippie commune. And you've got Richie Havens playing oh. the Othello character. This film is not a great film, but the songs in this are terrific, and Havens is fantastic. Uh, it's a great sort of curiosity uh, piece, isn't it? And it also has Tony Joe White. Susan Hubley, yeah. right? Okay, so Woodstock, one of the editors of Woodstock, and someone who went up there because he took time off from teaching at NYU to go up there and work on the stage crew and, and run some of the units was Marty Scorsese. Mm-hmm. So Marty's wow. And Shanana and a lot of other stuff. Okay, um, he was my film teacher, and he knew I worked at the Fillmore East. So to get a good grade, I would get him good tickets. You know, <laughs> as, as they say in the Irishman, it is what it is. Okay, mm-hmm. and that leads us, of course, to the last one. I couldn't uh, live with twenty years on the road. I don't think I could even discuss it. We gave our final concert, the band's final concert. We call it the last waltz. The editing and the camera placement is really good on Woodstock, and the editing is what tells the story. But in the last waltz, Marty set up those cameras so that in every shot, you see two or three musicians at the same time. And you see that interreaction. And you see those little looks or those things or they're glancing at each other's hands. So you can really dig into this movie and learn how all these great songs are put together. It's full of fantastic performances. Van Morrison is unforgettable for his performance and for that jumpsuit. I don't know who told him to wear that. Right. What about Neil Diamond and those glasses? Neil Diamond's when you go to the bathroom. <laughs> right. This is one of the great rock movies of all time. Is it true that they had to invent a traveling booger, Matt, for that? Uh, yes, it is. And <laughs> yeah, speak we, we all know what that was for. First movie ever yeah. made that was an optical an optical, a film optical, from the first frame to the last frame was Woodstock. It had never been done before, where uh, everything yeah, yeah. in the film is an optical because they have oh. scenes with supers and multiple screens. So that's the top four for me, right? So, But now you have to transition over to what about great rock concert movies where it's just one band and many, many people feel this is the best concert film ever made. The transition from concert films, which have many acts in them, to just one band. Because the staple of the concert film is the many acts. Talking heads, stop making sense. Directed by Jonathan Demme, shot by Jordan Mm -hmm. Earth, who had just shot uh, Blade Runner. This is a fantastic movie. Again, the camera tells the story. Every third song, they change the lighting setup completely and the photographic style. And you really learn this music inside and out. They keep adding musicians, which makes it more and more exciting. For me, the sequence of burning down the house into life 
before wartime. This ain't no disco. This ain't no fooling around. Those two songs together are as exciting as anything I've ever seen on film. And if you watch those again, just watch the way one shot just goes from one person to another, connects them all in one take, and then holds on David Byrne forever. Jonathan Demme is a gifted, gifted director of music. His Neil Young stuff is fantastic. So I'm amazed he didn't do more. Did a Robin Hitchcock concert film. Hi, is my hair all right? Okay, let's go. He did a couple videos, and in a funny way, the music in Something Wild is one of the best movies with needle drops I've ever seen. And here's a really obscure fact. Write this down, kids. This is on the final. <laughs> the person who did the score for Caged Heat, Women yeah. of Flesh, Bars of Steel. I know this because I helped write that line. The music is done by John Cale, The Velvet Underground. Wow. Holy moly, I didn't know that. That's incredible. Caged Heat. Enter the female jungle of women's prison, USA. A seething hell of steel and stone where bodies behind bars ache with hunger for a man. Any man. It's everything a boy could want. You got your John Cale wow. and you got naked fights in the shower. So, yeah. <laughs> Exactly. All the bases covered. Bernie and I just did a podcast about three, four days ago talking about Paris 1919. I wish we would have had that factoid. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've got a lot of John Cale. I think I've yeah, got most. Single bands. Let's go. To, okay. Let me just say also my premise is this, that right now we are in the golden age of rock concert films. Oh, yeah. Because of digital, because of the ability to, on computer to take an old negative and fix it. The fact that many of these concert films had no slates on them. You can sync it all up and save them and they are... Since the music business is in the shitter, but publishing is making them their money, they can pull out all these classic performances and get them out to us. Bearing that in mind, let's go to something The Grateful Dead did. Okay. The Grateful Dead have done a lot on film. This is called Sunshine Daydream. The Grateful Dead return to movie theaters for the third annual Meetup at the Movies. Experience Sunshine Daydream, the unreleased and gloriously remastered concert and happening held in Benita, Oregon on August 27th, 1972. Rock set, and it was filmed in a goat pasture in Oregon in 1972. So right away, your interest has got to be piqued by that. The Dead had come back from Europe. They were playing as well as they've ever played in their lives. And Ken Kesey had Jerry Garcia and all of them had started together in the acid test, had a goat farm and he was going to open up a creamery because they were successful and they needed some money. So they built the stage in the middle of this goat pasture. And this is really low budget. They took the labels from the goat milk bottles and that was your ticket. They printed on the other side the ticket. At the same time, there was some people who heard about this who did documentaries and they asked the dead if they could film them. And they said yes. So they set up four cameras. There is no dolly shots. There is no camera movement. There are no lights. It's just the cameras aimed at the dead. The temperature is easily 105 because they mentioned it. Right. And while the concert is going on, people start taking off their clothes. And <laughs> all the concert reactions are not the way mostly you do. You cut, you cut together a bunch of random. They're all kind of in real time because there's not that much footage. When they showed it to the dead, the dead hated it. And Jerry was about to make the Grateful Dead movie. So it sat in a vault for 40 years. And all things with the Grateful Dead are 
the tape you don't have is the tape you must have. And <laughs> people had cassettes of this concert and swore it was a great concert. So somebody found this. They talked it dead into it. They put it back together. They had multi-track recording things. And they put it out. Honestly, you're talking to a deadhead here. This is one of the 10 best dead concerts ever. And it's on film. And you watch it, there's people standing on scaffolding behind Garcia with their nuts hanging out, you know. (laughs) It is like a lost civilization. I bet there's a lot of hair on on display in that. Oh, my God. (laughs) There was a theatrical one, wasn't it, from the 70s? The Grateful Dead movie. I remember that that was theatrical, yeah. Yes, and that came right after it. And and I have that here. That's this one. Right. That's the Grateful Dead movie. And I cut the trail for that. Because I've been friends with Garcia since 69 or so and, and, and did tours of Europe. But uh, Sunshine Daydream, if you're a dead fan, it's great. You know, mm-hmm. if not, you will try the patience of everyone. But the thing that's really cool about it is there's no light. So as the sun moves, the lighting on the change mo- stage moves and then the sun sets. And there's no lighting, but they keep filming them. So the last song's completely in the dark. That's pretty much and, as close as you could ever get to actually being there, I guess, isn't it? Yes, and that's Grateful just... Dead Perfection. And speaking of Grateful Dead Perfection, I know it's not a concert film, but Long Strange Trip, the documentary that's on Amazon, everything you could ever want. It explains the magic. It explains why it worked. There isn't one single aspect of the dead that's not brought up. And it is so funny. I mean, they were funny. They caused things to be chaotic and humorous. Long Strange Trip is another good one. Let's stick with bands who made documentaries about bands. One band. Their name was The Beatles. They're on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> I mentioned this before. You can get this. This is The Beatles on Ed Sullivan. As all of us on our show like The Beatles so much. They're really four very well-mannered youngsters. And I think that's what American youngsters recognize in them. I showed it to my AFI class this year. And this is all very serious filmmakers from every country of the world. I have 35 young filmmakers from China. You know, they're all between 25 and 35. They know who the Beatles are. They may have seen something on YouTube, but they never had the effect of seeing all those girls screaming. When Ed Sullivan goes, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, and they go into all my love. Is that just a compilation of all the various Ed Sullivan appearances, or is there something putting it all in context as well? No, it's all their appearances and the whole episode of Ed Sullivan. Right. So if you are not so interested in the Beatles and much more interested in Topo Giccio with singing (laughs) and those horrible Canadian stand-ups that he always had, and Giselle McKenzie and so forth. Now, there's one of these that's got the Rolling Stones on it, too. And the Stones one is historically more interesting because they had a longer arc on Ed Sullivan. They went through more changes in that period, so you see their clothes change quite a bit. Right, right. I think the Stones one, isn't that the one where they actually asked them to sing Let's Spend Some Time Together instead of Let's Spend the Night Together? Oh, yeah, yeah. right in the lens and obviously says time with the subtext let's get laid you yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
Okay, so I worked at the Fillmore East, and in 1970, uh, 69-70, New Year's Eve concert was Jimi Hendrix and Band of Gypsies. So they were recording it for a live recording because Jimi had some contract problems, and that was going to go to Capitol and solve all this stuff. And they were sensational performances. 15, 20 years later, I'm walking through the West Village and I'm going to a used record store. This is when people went to record stores. I'm looking through the records and I hear Machine Gun from that concert. Which I know really well because it's a live I have the library. I look up and it's on a TV. And I look and I go, this was shot from the first row of the balcony. I mean, I know this angle because this is the angle where we always had a camera going. This is the whole concert from that one camera position. It's oh, now wow. Amelie Rothschild, who was the house photographer. You've seen a photograph of the Fillmore East. You've seen Amelie's work. Got one of the early video cameras and filmed the whole thing. There are no cuts. There is no camera moves except zooms in and out. If you are a guitar player, this is like Super Yoda, you know. You can right. sit yeah, down yeah. and just watch Jimmy. It's not for the casual. You know? It's a three-quarter inch video from 1969. But it's an incredible performance of Machine Gun and all those songs. So that's, this is a collector's item, but you can get it from the Jimi Hendrix estate, and it's called Hendrix Band of Gypsies. Okay. Wow. I didn't wow. know that existed. That's amazing. I'm going to have to find that. Here's another sort of concert one of everyone getting together and playing. It's called Festival Express. Just imagine putting a bunch of crazy musicians together and telling them to go have a good time. It was a train full of insane people careening across the Canadian countryside. What do you want? Oh, uh, yes. yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. There was another one that was lost. Right. And they patched the negative together and they put together. And what the idea was is that well, they're going to get all these rock bands on a train and they're going to go across Canada and stop in all these cities and put on concerts. The band, Grateful Dead, Big Brother, uh, no, Janis Joplin, Ian and Sylvia, lots of people. It was at the height of music should be free for the people. So a lot of these concerts turned into free concerts. About a third of the way across the country, they ran out of liquor in the bar car. They went and they bought all the liquor out of a store, and it's in here, them buying it. <laughs> and the tone of the music and the concerts changed for the rest of the way. There is some great drunken dram sessions in this. So <laughs> Janis Joplin singing with the band and the dead and everyone together on this train. Good concert stuff. So that's called Festival Express. One more thing I wanted to ask you about, Alan, because you've already gone and mentioned there a couple of these films which were long lost and yes. uh, only seen the light of day in recent times. What did you think of Amazing Grace, the film that Sidney Pollack had originally oh put together? Oh, my God. It was thrilling. I just thought it was fantastic. I'm the young lady that we've all been waiting to hear. She can sing anything. Anything. My sister, Miss Aretha Franklin. I thought it was beautifully edited. Obviously, the music is great. It's not a film as much as it is a real experience. I mean, it's very well shot. And the music sounds fantastic. And I had the record, but... If you ask me who the greatest singer is of the last hundred years, 
I'm going to pick Aretha over Sinatra, you know. Oh, I think we all would. There was something that I found really, really interesting. You would never have been able to pick up on the record because it's very much a visual thing. Uh-huh. She's already like this big star, Atlantic's greatest recording artist. So she was famous. She was well-known. And she's coming back to her father's church to perform. But without having read a biography of Aretha, I can't say that, you know, whether I know this for sure or anything. But it, it looked to me that there were moments where she was almost... If if not quite terrified of her father, but just looked like she wasn't sure, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing okay? He comes in swaggering. I think you're absolutely right about the father. That was kind of a known thing in the music world. We used to have, whoever great musicians were in town, they would all come and have dinner at his house on a Sunday. And after dinner, he would show off his daughter. So that sort of pressure, that's how word got out, how great she was. And that's how Columbia signed her and Atlantic knew how great she was. So when, you know, she didn't work out at Columbia, Atlantic signed her the next day. Okay, let's go around and everyone's the most exciting band you ever saw. I'm a little bit younger than uh, the other guys here. I would say probably a band called The Jesus Lizard. Oh, okay. I don't I think know. Tim Tim will vouch for them as well. They were kind of a, oh, yeah. I suppose, like a post-punk kind of band from the late 80s, early 90s, but very energetic, very intimate, very not much of a divide between them and the crowd. But yeah, very, very memorable. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, for me, I definitely have to say when Iggy and the Stooges got back together again, I saw them. Oh, wow, Toronto. yeah. You yeah. Can see Hall. You have to have Iggy somewhere on on. Oh home. yeah, they never filmed any of that footage for a documentary, and they should have, like for an actual concert film of Ron and Scott and Steve yeah. McKay and like all those guys back together again. They should have done it somewhere and done it proper as a full concert film. And I know what Jim did with Gimme Danger, but to me, that's the story of the Stooges. But that's not a performance, right? But I think them getting back together again, they should have documented that somehow because I know so many people with their cell phones and everything that have done it but that's just a facsimile i mean if somebody had done that proper i think that was a real crime Mm -hmm. on youtube someone has put up there was a concert videotaped on tv in 1970 yeah that was from goose lake that was the michigan show or they were no it was this or either goose lake or was the cincinnati pop festival i think it was i think it was the cincinnati pop festival so there's a watching tv when that happened to see iggy smear himself with peanut butter yeah Right. It's one of the great tragedies that there isn't yeah. really much live footage of the Stooges. Right. Uh, that guy, when he's like, and there's Iggy on stage, and I think he's smearing peanut butter on himself. And, well, and the guy, it's just so monotone, but it's hilarious. Like, That's, yeah, you yeah. hit it on the head. But that guy's name was Jack Lescooley. Jack Lescooley used to do like the Rose Bowl parade and stuff like that. And then they had a younger, hipper person who was just like Jack Lescooley, except younger. And uh, <laughs> early in the Iggy set, he jumps into the audience. And Jack Lescooley is completely caught by surprise. And he says, well, it appears that Mr. Iggy has jumped into the audience and disappeared. <laughs> Let's go to commercial and see what it works. <laughs> Since we broke away for our message, Iggy has been in the crowd and out again three different times. They seem to be enjoying it, and so does he. Professional. That Goose Lake show that the Stooges recorded has just come out on vinyl. 
somebody right. uh, apparently found tapes in a basement somewhere. It's been remastered and released, and it's it's phenomenal. So uh, good. I think uh, the Third Man they, Records put they, it out. How many live records are out there? The film more seems to have an unending supply of, of Jefferson sure, Airplane. Sure. The other one connected to the Stooges, too, that I've always thought that they should have filmed the whole show was that footage that's out of the MC5 when they're yes. doing Ramblin' Rose and when they're actually mm-hmm. playing that. Uh, yeah. they, I think it's on a college campus or somewhere. They should have shot that whole thing. I'm pretty sure that they shot all of it, but I've well, only seen bits that, and pieces of it. There's that documentary that's held up in litigation. True testimonial. Yeah, yeah. I actually have, well, don't tell anyone, but I have a bootleg of it. That we all. I also have a bootleg yeah, of a band I, called Cocksucker Blue. We've spoken about that on the show about a year or so ago. We were talking about Gimme Shelter and yeah. uh, I went through this whole thing watching Charlie is My Darling, Cocksucker Blues, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones. Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones, that was like the officially sanctioned concert film from the same tour of, right. uh, of Cocksucker and, Blues. And wasn't it's not it? very well directed. I think it's an important piece of yeah. archival footage because it shows the blow, it shows the deprivation and degradation. On yeah, yeah. The scene on the Rolling Stones private plane where one of the groupies is assaulted by one yes. of their roadies and the band just looks on. So it's not a great film, but it's probably an important film. This is dirty rock and roll history. Yeah. Let's stay with the Stones, and then we'll come back to the most exciting band that I ever saw. Okay. All right, so here's my Stones pile. <laughs> Give me shelter. Mm-hmm, of course. And there's now outtakes that you can get on this, and you can see the whole Tina Turner performance without cutaways. Everyone has seen this movie. This is a great rock and roll movie. They did one in IMAX. Right, I remember that, to the max. Yes, it's directed by Julian Temple. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Julian directed sensational videos and that movie with David Bowie about London and Mons. Have you ever seen the uh, the film he made about the Glastonbury Festival? I haven't seen that one. I saw his Sex Pistols movie, though. I don't know, probably about 10, 15 years ago, but it's definitely worth checking out. The uh, Dr. Feelgood documentary. The Oil City Confidential that he did that was phenomenal as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is good. If I'm going to have people over for a night of rock and roll, I often play Start Me Up in this to start the evening because it has the <laughs> warriors and music and stuff. And then when the Stones come out on the stage, half the planet blows up. They just command that audience. Uh, I was showing my daughters that want to learn about rock and roll, and I froze the frame and I said, remember this always, this is what a rock and roll band's supposed to look like. And it was just the stones in a moment, but it's also got that giant blow-up doll. So this one for, for pageantry, Scorsese's for artistry, Shine a Light. My other worry about the cameras was, Marty, that, that they whiz around all the time and it's very annoying to the audience and to everyone on the stage. It'd be good to have a camera that moves, that, that swoops down and in and out. kind of know if at all possible what they're going to play we have to make sure that we're covered which guitar we'll be done marty you know now before the show i, I don't know what's going on <laughs> if nick stands in front of the light for more than 18 seconds it's going to burn i mean like flames to be expected the camera is always in the right place it's so fluid and if you are a uh, filmmaker you have to give complete props to the camera operators and camera assistants for keeping it in sharp focus the entire time because jagger is going back and forth across the stage and the performance in here of she was hot by the stones is staggering Mm -hmm. it's a case where the filmmaker 
shows you something that you become privileged by. Now, the first two or three songs are just fine. After these many years, the Stones can certainly crank out professionalism. But right during the first verse of She Was Hot, Keith is doing some runs and he looks over Ron Wood and Ron Wood goes, yeah. And he looks over at Mick and Mick is goes, yeah. And they just all the way through the end of the song, right into down the line. And at the end, they are just on fire at the end of down the line. The camera lingers on Charlie Watts, who literally becomes a 70 year old man and goes, hey. <laughs> <laughs> There's a moment in that film that just the, the camera can't tell you everything. Right. Um, there's this moment where after Buddy Guy plays with the band oh. and Keith is obviously in raptures that he's gotten to play right. with him, but he gives him his guitar and Buddy has this look on his face as if to say, what the fuck is this guy giving me his guitar? <laughs> yes, I love that. And I love when Jack White comes out and uh, he's singing with them. And, and then at one moment he steps back for Keith Solo or something. And all of a sudden this look goes across Jack White's face like, I'm playing with the fucking Rolling Stones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy shit. Wow. There was a theatrical one that came out in the 70s, too, that I remember seeing in the theater called, what was it, uh, Let's Spend the Night Together? Late 70s, and we're going to a go-go. Right, right, right. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. You know, let's talk about one that doesn't work. And that one doesn't work because... Right, right. He uses very long lenses. He doesn't get close to the stage. He uses very long lenses. And it just, it has no point of view. And it's very well shot. And Hal Ashby's a great editor and a great director. But he didn't capture anything that we didn't already know. And so that one doesn't work for me. But this does. I don't know if anyone has this. You can get this. It's called Totally Stripped. And there was an album called Total Trip that the Stones did. And at the same time, what wasn't known is that Don Was was bugging them to film some of their shows with acoustic or play songs that you don't normally play. The album is in this and three DVDs, four DVDs. One is in Tokyo in a recording studio and they play their best songs with perfect sound. The version of Wild Horses is just great. There's one show in London, but the show, that's the show of shows, is in the Club Paradiso in Amsterdam. Club Paradiso was the first hash club in Amsterdam. I remember going there in the early 70s. That's where you went. You could smoke dope there mm-hmm. legally. And mm-hmm. they had bands there. I don't know if anyone remembers the crazy world of Arthur Brown. I am the god of hellfire! Of course. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My so, uncle saw him live. I live in a town called Bath over oh. here in the UK. So we don't really have any venues anymore, but back in the 60s, we had the Bath Pavilion. My uncle saw um, Arthur Brown, saw Jimi Hendrix. Wow. A bunch of other people as well, but he always tells me about Arthur Brown. That one was really memorable because he came on with uh, like the flaming hats. The flaming and helmet he, thing, still, you know. He's still playing too. Arthur's still yeah. on the road. Is he really? Still yeah, Why? he's still playing. Yeah. I don't think he probably wears the headdress anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But if you want to see the greatest bar band in the world. That night in Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. they just kick it totally. And they do all kinds of songs that they don't normally do. There's only 600 people in the audience. And as Keith says about Mick, he says, you can give them a a mile-wide stage, you can give them four feet. It still becomes an exciting show. This is really great. All right, most exciting band I've ever seen, The Who. 
if your listeners don't have it, they might try the documentary. The kids are all right. I know it's technically yeah. not a concert film, but it's got some good songs in it. There's a lot of film material of The Who. Yep, we just spoke about that on the show about two, three months ago. The greatest mixtape ever made. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a one performance that's on DVD called Live at the Isle of Wight. Come on, come on, come on, give me the water. Down to business. This is the Who at their peak period. Always have this image because I, I they played the film Maurice so many times, and the image I have of the Who is they are like being in a car that's out of control. It's thrilling. It's going so fast, but you might get killed. <laughs> And you don't know whether this band is going to be able to make it to the end of the song on a good night. And the Isle of Wight is a good night, especially Young Man Blues. Alan, just for the listenership who may not have heard your appearance on the show last time, can you uh, please tell again the story about the night at Fillmore East where there was a fire and the Who were playing? Oh, okay. So when I was in film school at NYU, um, the Fillmore East opened up in the East Village. So this is 1968. This was the first sets of quality rock and roll tours. This was the first quality rock and roll theater where you sat down and watched the show. Uh, this is not a dance hall. Well, there mm-hmm. only dance places before this. And the lighting designer had done Broadway and had done the Newport Jazz Festival. The sound people had come right out of NYU Theater School, which was right next door to the Fillmore. And they had come over. There was no jobs on Broadway. And they brought the concept of good sound to rock and roll. It had never been considered before this. And they designed the PA so the sound was as perfect. And they tuned the building. It was presented as a show. All of us were film students or theater students or all in our 20s, rock and roll fanatics. And so every week, whatever band was playing, there was usually a new band that we had not heard of because this is rock forming. So you'd all, someone would get a copy of a band called Mata Hoople and you'd all rush to someone's apartment in the afternoon on Friday because it was Friday and Saturday nights. So you listen, you have two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. You listen to the new Mata Hoople, you know, this band you never heard of or Savoy Brown or 10 years after and, you know, all these bands. The Who was a band that we loved because in 1969 when they played there and you can buy this live recording, they were great and they hadn't done Tommy yet and now they had done Tommy and all that existed of Tommy was a 45 of Pinball Wizard, which was the first stereo 45. So all of us would sit around and smoke dope and listen to this 45 over and over again. And on the afternoon, who were going to play at the Fillmore East on the tour to support Tommy, we had a copy of the album and just come out. So everyone is crowded in my apartment and we're all listening to Tommy trying to get through the whole thing so we know what it's about. So the show starts and the Who are just incredibly exciting. I don't, You never see those cartoon versions of what goes on inside an atom during nuclear fission. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. electrons are spinning around. The center is glowing, you know. That's what it is because Keith is the doing the arms of the drums and Roger's got the microphone and he's twirl, twirling that around and Pete's arms are turning and the, the proton in the center is John Entwistle. And so 
Tommy was amazing. We all wanted to be down front to see Tommy. And what we usually did was, if you were an usher, you, there was like four of you on your crew, we would do uh, straws and you, you'd pick the show. If you got the short straw or whatever it was, you got to watch that show from your favorite position. That's how I saw the Led Zeppelin the first time, down front. But we were so freaked out by the Who and Tommy that we all took turns. So I go down front and it's like three quarters of the way through Tommy and I'm sitting there just like in awe. I'm literally 15 feet from the Who in full flight. And uh, they are just getting towards listening to you. I get the music. And it just seems like the air has a funny smell in it. I turn around (laughs) and go back towards the lobby. They didn't allow you to smoke in the theater, but, you know, it's the 60s. I see, as I'm walking up the aisle to the lobby to take the top of the aisle position, that there is lights on all over 2nd Avenue that look like cop car lights and firemen. And the lobby seems to be filling up with firemen and police officers, which was unusual. Uh, (laughs) And uh, also there's a glow coming that's reflecting off the cars across the street. And the theater is filling with smoke. And I turn around and sure enough, the theater is full of smoke, you know. And the Who are now into listening to you. I get the music. This person runs right past me in a suit and almost knocks me down and runs and jumps up on the stage. And that is the head detective or police officer and tries to get the mic because trying to get the attention of the Who at that moment is not in the cards. He tries to get the microphone from Roger Daltrey, who is finishing up Tommy. Can you imagine? It's twirling. And, and finally, Townsend turns around. <laughs> the big arm thing going and the huge kicks. This is like he's 25 years old. He sees someone fighting with Daltrey. So he goes over and right on a downbeat, kicks the guy right in the nuts. And the guy goes down like a stone and the who rookies and the film worker drag this guy out. Now, In a Roman gladiatorial coliseum, when someone goes down or like in a bullfight, the audience rises to their feet. And this is the first blood now. And everybody gets up and screams because the who are just peaking. And as soon as they finish Tommy and everyone's there, they go right into summertime blues. And as they're doing, I'm going to raise a holler. Uh, Bill Graham is trying to get their attention and the aisles are now full of firemen and police officers. Bill gets out there on the stage and he gets their attention and he puts his arm around Roger and then he takes, everything stops. And it's like in those cartoons when people are breathing like, (sighs) and the whole theater's there. And and so um, Bill takes the microphone and he's very cool. He says, oh, we aren't the who great. (laughs) He says, we have a little problem. There's a fire across the street, and that's what all the smoke is, because now everyone notices the smoke and all the firemen. And so I just think, and the police agree with us, we should just let you guys out of the thing, because this smoke is pouring in from across the street. What he doesn't say is the building is actually on fire. Right next to the lobby was a bodega that was part of the building, and the wiring had caught fire, and that's what was burning, and that's why there was so much smoke. So Bill says, the ushers are going to show you out, you know, and as soon as we get the smoke cleaned up, we'll come back in and finish with the loop. And all of us are standing there. If you were a baby boomer from the tri-state era, you knew two things because it had been drummed into your head. You knew in case of nuclear attack, you would climb under a desk because that would save you. Or in a fire drill, you grabbed a buddy and didn't talk. And some usher yelled, it's a fire drill. Everyone grab a buddy. No talking. Theater was empty in five minutes. 
The street filled up. And that's the wow. story of whose first time they played Tom. Wow. Now, it seems to me that there's an opportunity just begging for someone to make a film about that night. Yes. I tried yeah. to do bits of it and get crazy, but I didn't get it right. I'm surprised yeah. that Bill didn't say, Roger, can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> and the guy who directed The Kids Are All Right, he was there that night because we've talked about it. I think I might have contacted you asking you, how do we get hold of Jeff Stein? Because we wanted to speak to him for our Kids Are All Right episode, but he's not on any of the social medias. There's one film that I wanted to recommend to you in terms of concert films that was really interesting. Have you ever heard of the Beastie Boys documentary they did? It's called Awesome. I fucking shot that. Take the open shot. Take the open shot. Take the open shot. I saw recently one on, was it on Netflix or was it on? Oh, that's the new documentary on them. But this one actually, it's called Awesome, I Fucking Shot That. Basically what they did, from a filmmaker perspective, you'll laugh at this, but they actually gave the audience 50 cameras and they had people in the audience actually shoot footage of the Beastie Boys during the show. And then what they did was later on, they just edited it all together. And it's one of the best concert films I've ever seen. And, you know, you don't even have to be a fan of hip hop or the Beastie Boys in general. Well, just I am to see a fan. How, to, to see how they pulled it off, though, with just people, amateurs, just giving, you know, it's like the old thing about monkeys and typewriters. You know, you give enough monkeys <laughs> typewriters and they're going to pull off Shakespeare. And they do with this. It's really, really good. Like, that's one of my favorites of all time. And when you talked about singular bands, one of the memories I had when I was a kid, one of the first concert films I ever saw, well, two in particular, well, one was uh, ACDC, Let There Be Rock. The only movie powered by ACDC, Let There Be Rock. A full-length, full-color, and full-power movie that's better than a concert. That is full-on. I mean, like that was. I think that was one of the first films where they released it in THX. Wow. Um, as a concert film. I've and never seen them. That's amazing, man. Like, it's a really, great film. really good document yeah. of ACDC, right? The other one I wanted to say, too, is Live in Pompeii. <laughs> I love that one, yeah. Yeah, what really struck me funny now, thinking about it last night, is they were almost prophetic in in the long-distance concerts now. I mean, like with the social distancing with COVID, right? Because they're winding up playing Pompeii and nobody's there. So I'm thinking that's kind of what's happening now, is all these bands now are playing and nobody's there, you know? They played the film Maurice a couple of times on special Sunday concerts, just them. The lighting designer from the Fillmore East loved them and, and did a beautiful job. And they ended up taking them out on tour with them. And he oh. designed the lighting for Dark Side of the Moon and all those tours. No way. His name was Arthur Shafransky. Arthur was a great lighting designer. And then he went back to school and studied production design. And now he's Ridley Scott's production designer. All of Ridley Scott's movie, as his name is now no longer Arthur Shafransky, it's Arthur Max. Um, wow. <laughs> okay, Nirvana Unplugged. Oh, yeah. This guy representing the Lead Belly estate wants to sell me Lead Belly's guitar for $500,000. passing a basket, Yeah. I even asked David Geffen personally if he'd buy it for me. He wouldn't do it. It's heartbreaking and yep. beautiful and yep. heartfelt. It's that thing about live performance you just never know. 
when it's going to be that magic, whether it's in a goat pasture or it's a, mm-hmm. a situation where he's playing acoustic and unlike what he played. But this is fantastic, especially the Lead Belly song, Where Do You Sleep at Night? If we're going to talk about Unplugged, we have to go with Eric Clapton's Unplugged for two reasons, three reasons. One, it's got the song about his son. Eric's playing is great. And if you are a guitar aficionado, I was at the Metropolitan Museum in New York at an exhibit of Martin guitars. And they had Martins from the 19th century and Martins from the 20th century in these cases. And the ones in the 19th century didn't sound good, according to every, every plaque that they had. But they had a lot of ivory inlay. And then they came to America and they really changed and they started making the guitars. And by the 20s, they actually were now making the outstanding Martins, you know, that we know. And there in a glass booth is this beautiful 1929 Martin acoustic with a plaque that says, this is the finest guitar we've ever made. This That year, this is our Stradivarius, you know. The wood was great. Everything was great. So if you have a guitar from that year, this is the one. And we'd like to thank the owner, Eric Clapton, for lending us this guitar. So if you watch Unplugged, that's the guitar he's playing. Oh, wow. So it sounds real good. (laughs) And I'm a big Eric Clapton fan. So I'm going to recommend the concert for George. That's the one I meant. The one for George Harrison. All I wanted to do was really share our love for George and his music with the people. I want to say. And it was easy to pick the people because there, there was a definite group of people that were always involved in George's life. Where all these different people play, Eric plays a bunch of songs, but his When My Guitar Gently Weeps. It's terrific, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's amazing about the sort of person that George was that you're going to get musicians like you know, Ravi Shankar, the Monty yeah. Python team singing Sit On My Face, and then <laughs> Eric Clapton and McCartney and all the rest doing While My Guitar Gently Weeps. It's a wonderful concert film. When Eric went through his blues period, and he did this DVD of him recording all these blues things. It's called Sessions for Robert Johnson. And it's just, you know, not very fancy. It's him in the studio and with these great musicians. And it's full of fantastic blues songs, not pretentious, just great musicians. You know, and they basically filmed them recording this record. So if you're a hardcore Clapton fan, this is the one for you. And if like me, Bob Dylan's your artist, Bob Dylan's my artist, the 30th anniversary concert celebration of Bob Dylan, which is an right. all-star concert, has so many great moments. But when Eric Clapton plays Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, he takes a solo in it that's as great as anything he did with Cream, anything he's ever done. But what will make the boomer in you cry is when they do My Back Pages. And it's Roger McGuinn, Tom Petty, George Harrison, Neil Young, Eric Clapton, and Bob Dylan singing I was so much older then I'm younger than that now so this is pretty great I was going to say to roll back for a minute talking about the Who and the Stones one thing that I think we have to bring up too is Rock and Roll Circus yes oh yeah I should have grabbed that the one aspect of that that has always hit me the best was uh, Taj Mahal and Jesse Davis you got to dig it baby Yeah. A lot of love. I mean, they, that man, 
you know, you can almost see like with the Who and with Taj and with everybody else that the Stones maybe thought for a minute, man, maybe we shouldn't have like stacked the deck so much because we're not looking so good here. Oh, <laughs> it just, and, and the Who it, doing um, a quick one while he's quick is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it just seems like everybody is so strong on that. Yeah, that's a great release. I love that. Led Zeppelin, this concert DVD that they put out. Is that the Albert Hall one? Film on them, and it's got years of concerts. And for a while, every guitar player in Los Angeles was studying this because they were shocked to realize that all those sound effects on Whole Lot of Love could be done live. What's that movie? Uh, it might get loud. Yep. Right. It has one of my favorite rock and roll moments in it. You've got Jack White, The Edge, and Jimmy Page. And in the middle of the film, they're talking about what device that they had bought that made a sound that made a famous song work. All up to that, these gods of rock, they know that Jimmy Page is the man. But they are all trying to act cool and not too much, you know, and, and discussing it like equals. Jack White plays this box and with a sound and you go, oh yeah that's the one from seven nation army and then uh the edge place has this giant panel of things and that's the sound from the streets have no name and jimmy page says i bought this and he names the music shop in london and this riff came out of it and he starts playing the riff from whole lot of love and the look on those two guys faces <laughs> it's like total wayne's world we're not worthy we're not worthy all these british guitar players got their stuff from obviously the chess catalog and right. uh, a lot of tours happened where they came over to England and you can buy them. This one's called the American Folk Blues, the British tours, and it's got Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and Sonny Boy Williamson. I'm saying that. That's magnificent. Yes, and so there's four of them. So we come to the getting down to the end here. Neil Young. Neil has filmed a lot of stuff. Back there is the laser disc that I can't play of Weld. I love Jonathan Demme's Heart of Gold. Bigger than a concert. More than a performance, a legend as you've never seen him before. Neil Young, Heart of Gold. Beautiful, beautifully filmed. Every moment of it is perfect. The camera position, the explanation of the music, the the DVD extras where Jonathan turns to the camera and goes, I just don't want to embarrass myself. <laughs> That's good. Silver and gold is good. I really like the Year of the Horse, but I gather one of you does not like it. Me. I've gotten into a discussion with the guy who runs the Network Pantheon podcast that we're part of. He's like a Neil Young obsessive. I was saying that I really, really love Rust Never Sleeps, yes. but I do not like Year of the Horse and mind you it's been a long time since I've seen it but it seemed to me that uh, with Russ Never Sleeps you know you get this feel and you get the, the Jawas coming out on stage and doing their thing and he's playing with Crazy yeah. Horse but there was something that Jim Jarmusch did it, maybe it was the one camera shot maybe they were too close in together I don't know it just didn't work for me I, I just you know what you were talking about a little bit about before yeah. about you know, things have to be thought out and have to be planned and get the real feel of it with a concert film it's made or broken i guess by how much you feel you are a part of it and i just felt it felt maybe very claustrophobic with the way that year of the horse was shot and i've never fallen asleep in a concert film before but i'm sad to say i saw that in the cinema and i, I nodded off you made me realize that i rarely play this again <laughs> i will play my wife and i We'll play anytime Hearts of Gold. You know, we'll sit there on the couch and listen to Neil and his wife sing 
and we will hold hands. But the one thing in the year of the horse that I do love is like a hurricane where he takes two concerts 10 years apart and intercuts them. Musically, I just, I want to emphasize, musically it's great because I've got the Arkweld CDs and the band are in fantastic, really vicious form. But just visually, I don't think Jim Jarmusch got it. And he's a great filmmaker. He's someone who I love. But that film just is not one that works for me. I like his Iggy film a lot, you know. So, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I actually yeah. thought, you know, I mean, there's only so much you can say about the Stooges, and they're one of my favorites of all time. But I just thought that there wasn't anything that was surprising to me with that. It, it was pretty straightforward. He had to get Iggy's support on that before he could go forward with it. But it just seemed to me, like with Gimme Danger, that it was more about Iggy and less about the band it just became more of a story of him instead of oh, the, well, them, uh, his brothers or them coming up well history iggy, uh, history's written by the winners isn't it i guess so <laughs> you guys yeah. want to hear how iggy is connected to get crazy absolutely okay yeah so i'm putting together the crew for get crazy and I know that if we're going to do a month of concert scenes, you know, with a crowd, I need a really tough, great AD. And I'm meeting all these ADs. And this one guy, I look at his resume and he has worked for John Ford. He did the Wild Bunch for Sam Peckinpah. I'm thinking, OK, this is the guy. And his father's a famous AD. Iggy and the Stooges. Iggy is playing at the Palladium in L.A. while we're in prep. So... Myself, the producer, the first AD, and the DP all go to see Iggy playing at the Palladium, okay? To get the feel and see the crowds and know what we wanted, etc. As it turned out, many people in that crowd ended up being extras for us. And so he throws himself off the stage, of course. You know, a couple of times, and they came around, and I turned to Cliff. The AD goes, can we do this? He goes, yes. And then Iggy runs to the back and climbs up the back stairs, and now he's in the overhead part, and he throws himself off the balcony. And he's caught by the crowd. And they go crazy. And I turn to Cliff, and I said, Cliff, can we do that? And he says, just watch me. <laughs> and that's how the talking sequence and get crazy. Wow. With and if you look closely, uh, because I actually am one of the people that dive off the balcony. <laughs> wow. It's, it's not the same. It's, it's literally three shots. The one shot where you exit, the shot in the middle, which is usually a stunt person, and the shot where they right, catch right. you was the, the real the actor. So, so that just leaves me with Bruce. Okay. This is my favorite Springsteen concert on film. It's live in New York City. It's very, very good. The band is great. Every song is great. There it is. <laughs> How much do you love Atlantic City on this? I think that'd be a whole show unto itself. Yes. And, and so this is a great concert. now that with every box set that Bruce puts out, these giant box sets charting his career, he includes a, a concert DVD in them. So you see great concerts. The Born to Run one is terrific because he's wearing the worst hat in the world. But the <laughs> fantastic in London. So I love watching Bruce and, you know, all these things. There's a great performance of Bruce when he's on Jimmy Fallon one night. And he plays Because the Night with uh, The Roots. It's one of those performances where they just 
take it as far as it'll go. I've seen some footage of him on one of those late night shows. I don't remember which one it was, but uh, who, who's a late night talk show host who always tries to bring out his guitar and play? That's it. Yeah, that's it. Jimmy Fallon. Fallon. That's Jimmy okay, Fallon. So, yeah. so Fallon, this is going back to possibly about the, the time where the E Street Band had the reunion. They did the rising, but then after the break, Fallon joins them and they all do Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Ah, he also, there's also one where Jimmy Fallon plays Neil Young. Dresses like him and sounds like him. And right, Bruce with Neil, with Neil, yeah, with Neil. And they do uh, Shake My Hair or some song yeah. like that. That's a terrible song. <laughs> and so lastly, as an aficionado, I wanted to do the best possible concert footage that I could to capture how I felt the Ramones were. So I'm going to throw in self-promotion here. This is the new Blu-ray of Rockwell <laughs> High School. Things sure have changed since we got kicked out of high school. Where are you going? Going to Mr. McGree's class. Oh, well, I'm happy to see that some students still are interested in their studies. Hey, we're not students. We're the Ramones. Ramones? You're responsible for making that horrible rock and roll music? You've turned the whole school against me. Do your parents know that you're Ramones? Because I do think, separately, and I've seen it now with audiences and stuff, it's a really slamming performance by the Ramones. And I think you really get the feel of a Ramones concert. And I love that, I, you know, even though it's me, I love that I put the words on the screen. So, <laughs> Regardless of whether you like the Ramones or not, they're one band that I can say, within the shadow of a doubt, 100%, they never dialed it in. No. I mean, I mean, so they never phoned it in, is what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. They never, ever phoned it in. Every single time that they right. played, it was like the last time they would play. Yeah, And they would rehearse it in the dressing room. No matter how many times they played those songs, they would play five or six of them in the dressing room to get warmed up. So when they hit the stage, they were ready. I guess well, Johnny had that. He really had that work ethic, didn't he? It was, oh, yeah. Um, there was no yeah, yeah. fucked up in the dressing room. Yeah, yeah. Every band has its person who's the sergeant, and that was John. And in um, The Dead, it was supposed to be Garcia, but he was kind of an unreliable narrator, so to speak. (laughs) I wanted to quickly recommend a film to you all, because in preparation for this, I was sort of thinking that Australia doesn't really have much of a history of concert films. There's only three that came across my mind. One which I'd never seen from the mid-80s called Australian Made. It was like a big concert tour of a whole bunch of acts doing a concert. I think they had uh, In Excess and Jimmy Barnes and I can't remember who else. There was one from the early 80s which was a film about Cold Chisel who were and still probably are the biggest band within Australia. There's a film called The Last Stand. They've since reformed many times but at the time after uh, 10 years of being together they did this farewell concert thing and it's very different in how it presents itself to something like The Last Waltz. It's just them. There's not a ton of extra artists coming on to pay tribute. But the one I really sort of wanted to talk about for a couple of minutes to recommend, because there's a bit of a history to this. So for four years, I think from 1973 to 1975 in Australia, actually about maybe 40, 50 kilometers from where I am now, there's a little town called Sunbury. And just outside of Sunbury, there's a little place called Digger's Rest. They had a festival there, which was purported to be like Australia's equivalent of Woodstock 
just as an aside, I was speaking with a local music historian, Ian McFarlane, who said that he thought that the Woodstock angle was a bit overplayed because there were other music festivals in the early 70s and other parts of the country that was similar to what Sunbury did. But Sunbury, because they made a film of it, was the one that got the name and it became, uh, well, I don't know, famous, infamous, I think in, was it 74, 75, Queen's first tour of Australia and they were booed off stage. And wow. we don't know whether it was less because of the type of music that they were or because there was a big rivalry between Australians and, and the Brits. And they just thought, who are these pommy bastards? who were <laughs> playing, at, playing at our festival. And Sunbury, at least for his first couple of years, was predominantly an Australian music festival. Anyway, so there was a, a fellow who worked at one of our TV networks in Channel 9, and he saw how big Woodstock was. So he said, well, why don't we put together a festival of local artists, the big artists of the time. So he put together this thing in Sunbury in 1972. And that's the first of the four festivals. It was filmed. It was called Sunbury 72. Welcome to Sunbury. Yeah. What are you expecting? Oh, good fun. Did you have a good trip down on the train? Oh, yeah, it's all right. You come from Sydney? Yeah, Paddington. And what do you expect to see down here? Peace, music, have a good time, see all the people. So I contacted Ian McFarlane and said to him, was this film ever shown in the cinemas? Because I, I want to make this discussion about cinema releases. And, like, Ian knows everything, but even he had to look this up. It looks cinematic, but what they did was when some of the acts, which I'll go into in a minute, when they would perform live shows after this film had been made, they would show Sunbury 72 as, like, a warm-up to the big concerts that they would do. So, I mean, I guess one of the other big music films of the time, which was actually a surfing film called Morning of the Earth. Maybe you've heard of that one. They had a whole lot of great Australian bands at the time do the soundtrack, and I think maybe about 15 years ago or so, any of the surviving bands or musicians were performed live while the film was showing a tour of all the big theatres of the country. But anyway, so Sunbury 72 is great for a bunch of reasons. So some of the bands on there, and I know that Tim will be a fan of some of these bands. So Chain, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, Max Merritt and the Meteors, and a band called Wild Cherries, which featured a guitarist I know you love called Lobby Lloyd. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the thing what made this concert so special I mean like it's, it's a time capsule for me to watch this as, it, as much as anything to see what was Sunbury like what was Digger's Rest like what was the scene like and there's a, a fellow who has done a lot for the music industry but he's sort of mocked a little bit he's a bit of a cliche but also but in some ways he's done a lot for the music industry a guy called Ian Meldrum but back in those days he was a music journalist before he became a big TV rock show host but in this, we see him interviewing people who are coming to the festival. And it's, yeah, it's it's like Woodstock was for American boomers. Right. This was for Australian boomers. And the thing that makes this so interesting from a visual perspective, and I don't think the, the guy who directed it ever made another film again, at least nothing like this. But he just gets the visuals right. There's the obligatory interview moments and shots of what the audience was doing. There was like a local river and it was the middle of summer. So they're all getting their kit off and going swimming in the river. There's a fascinating sequence where some of the audience would go down to a pub in Sunbury to go get some extra beer, extra reserves. And the, the police who'd actually sort of been relatively okay with the festival going ahead, but they pounced. So that 
that's that's really quite fascinating. But what is so good about this festival, whereas Woodstock and to an extent, you know, Gimme Shelter explains a lot about maybe the end of a period in American rock music history. In a way, Sunbury documents the beginning of Australian rock music history through the 70s, because a lot of the great bands who did anything in the 70s went through the pubs. So pub rock, it was a bit crunchy, loud, blues-based music. So those bands who I mentioned before, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, who started out really more as like just a... I know that name. Right, well, he started as a pop crooner doing his version of Over the Rainbow and a song Poison Ivy. He started out as one thing, and then he had to reinvent himself, and Lobby Lloyd said to him, listen, man, loud guitars are the thing. You know, (laughs) get yourself a big stage rig and just make yourself as loud as you can, and that's the thing. So... Billy Thorpe took his advice. There's a ton of great Billy Thorpe live albums out there, but the the big one is his performance at Sunbury. Okay. Getting to see all these bands play, and there's a few others who were never heard of again. Is this available anywhere? We have a local DVD company called Umbrella, and they might have, I think, all of the Sunbury performances available on physical media, but Sunbury 72 is on YouTube for you to watch. I think the whole thing is about 70 minutes, and seeing these bands who I know, but getting to see them do their thing visually, uh, getting to see them in concert through this, it's a real great time capsule. And outside of Australia, no one probably knows who a lot of these bands are, but musically, I know it to be something that you'd really enjoy, Alan. Two-way street here. I just all my notes. I'm stuck in wow. <laughs> and I got, I, I've got to add one thing, too, now that it's coming to mind. I cannot not mention this. Watch stacks. The brothers all of us have been waiting for. You know, I mean, the funkiest yeah. man alive in his shorts, man. Rufus Thomas. Holy shit. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> I think he, he steals the film away from Isaac Hayes. They were building up to Hayes, but that bit with Rufus Thomas. It's also a hip-hop con- uh, concert. Oh, he's a great comedian. Oh, uh, Dave Chappelle, The Block Party. That's it, Block Party. Yeah, but- yeah. I just want to make a quick mention. So when we finish our discussion with you, Ellen, one of our listeners and a great podcaster in his own right, Bill Ackerman, uh, has a terrific show called Supporting Characters. He uh, very kindly went and sent us a little bit of audio feedback because I put out the message to ask people to tell us what their favorite concert films were. And we got you know quite a few responses on our Facebook page. But Bill went to the trouble of actually recording something for us. And he speaks for a few minutes about Dave Chappelle's Block Party. And ah. to my embarrassment, I've not seen it. And now just based That's on great. his discussion of it, I have to watch it. For another kind, the Stax Bolt organization, all of them, went on tour that ended up at Monterey. And they did a right. con- in Scandinavia that you can buy. Sam and Dave and Otis and Booker T and all right. of them. It's, you know, right. it's strictly a TV filming mm-hmm. of it. Black and white, right. but they're great. One more that I wanted to mention, too, was uh, Baby Snakes with Zappa. Because that film, man, is just, I mean, it, I think it's footage of uh, his Halloween concerts. Uh-huh. New York Halloween concerts, but that is amazing, and it's been re-released. So is Baby Snakes the one with the clay animation? You're right, with Bruce Bickford, yeah, with all the acid claymation in it, and with Apple playing guitar and everything. But that's phenomenal, man. Like, I mean, to me, that's one of my favorite concert films as well. I gotta say, guys, I think we got pretty far in the weeds, so it's a job well done here. <laughs> Yay! Just a, a couple of quick ones. I just wanted to mention Erg, A Music War. Give me some 
man. What is this place? It's the rhythm I need. Suppose they gave a music war. I need this. And everybody came. Can I put something to you, Bernie? I only just watched Ergon Music War for the first time very recently. And yeah. I reckon that that Gary Newman sequence would oh. have been an influence for This Is Spinal Tap. I think it must be. You couldn't make that up. It's just hilarious, isn't it? So that's a great one. And I did, uh, I mentioned briefly Julian Temple's Glastonbury film. There was also a film called Glastonbury Fair from 1972, which actually documents the second Glastonbury Festival. And it was much more of a smaller sort of, it was kind of a free festival. Did what, uh, way back then? Yes, uh, with our psychedelic light show. Did you really? Oh, that's incredible. Wow. So did you know about the film Glastonbury Fair? Uh, You're probably in it, aren't you, Alan? (laughs) I think it was Um, called Glastonbury. I know we went and did a festival in the north of England. Oh, Glastonbury, South England. Okay. Maybe. Might have been something else. But that one, it's only about an hour long, and it's a a bit more kind of like Woodstock in in that it's more about the culture and the events. But you have got Fairport Convention are in it, Arthur Brown again is in it family are in there gong are in there mm. kingdom come which i think was arthur brown's band or there was some involvement there wasn't there quintessence the sort of british prog band from the time yeah. terry reed's in that as well oh um, terry. so it's, terry. i'm not sure how easy it is to track that one down but if you can it's definitely worth yeah, it i'd love to see some fairport convention footage which makes me think i wonder if there's a documentary about property because that's there must be something mustn't there you, you think oh, look i'm sure i've seen like actual footage like concert footage. there might have been concert specials or something mm-hmm. like that but cropity has been going for so long it's begging to have a documentary about the history of the festival there's a wonderful concert film with richard thompson called the history of song where he plays songs from the middle ages all the way to oops i did it again okay so the, the story behind that run of shows was playboy magazine was going to a whole bunch of musicians just before 2000 and said right we want you to name your favorite songs of the millennium so they went to richard as well and he said i know what you mean you only want the la- the best songs of the rock and roll era well i'm going to give you my favorite songs of the millennium and sure enough they didn't publish his article right but that got to be his a motivation to actually start this run of shows where he was doing the history of the last thousand years of song. I think that's a wonderful concert. Thank you, Alan, so much. Yeah, like, this has been, been incredible. We look forward to uh, maybe having you on again when Get Crazy gets its uh, Kino Lorber release. Maybe we'll do something where we'll have the whole editorial team because we're all still friends. Oh, oh wow. Uh, <laughs> that would be incredible. Count us in. Wow. Count us in. So don't promise something you can't deliver, Alan, if you <laughs> <gonna> say that. <laughs> fantastic thanks alan take care thanks cheers yep stay safe people say that your music is loud and destructive and lethal to mice but i think you're the beethovens of our time we're going to go to the one bit of feedback audio feedback that we had from bill ackerman where he's going to talk about his love of dave Chappelle's block party we'll be back in a moment you're listening to see here episode 76 hi this is bill ackerman of the supporting characters podcast i'm recording a message about favorite theatrically released concert films Uh, i think a lot of my own favorites would rank among the usual suspects monterey pop watt stacks the last waltz sign of the times stop making sense give me shelter 
her big time. Uh, the Weavers wasn't that a time. And while I wouldn't say this is necessarily a better film than Gimme Shelter or Jazz on a Summer's Day or one of the other canonized favorites, I wanted to give a shout out to my personal favorite, Dave Chappelle's Block Party, directed by Michel Gondry and released in the spring of 2006. Now, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, uh, the premise is that comedian Dave Chappelle uh, throws a free all-day concert in Brooklyn featuring an assortment of hip-hop and neo-soul artists. Uh, we see him gathering various locals from the small Ohio town where he resides. Uh, we see various behind-the-scenes conversations with the performers, and we see musical numbers interspersed throughout. Uh, the musical lineup is mostly comprised of artists that were once identified as being part of a loose collective called the Soulquarians, which orbited around the Roots in the late 90s and early 2000s. Now, the Roots are atypical in uh, that they are a hip-hop act with a full band, uh, with bass guitar, drums, keyboards, uh, and so forth. Uh, and they not only play their own material, but they provide the live background instrumentation for rappers like Kanye West, Common, and Most Def, as well as singers like Jill Scott and Erica Badu. Uh, and because these artists have a history of collaboration and friendship, they drop in on one another's sets, sitting in like jazz musicians. Uh, it feels loose and informal, even though the performances themselves are quite tight and energetic. Um, but there's much more to it than the music that makes the film great. Uh, Dave Chappelle at the time, had just been offered something in the neighborhood of $50 million by Comedy Central for a uh, new season of his popular TV show, Chappelle Show. So he's incredibly rich and famous, and the concert is his way of giving back. Um, But by the time the film reaches theaters, nearly two years later, uh, Dave Chappelle would famously have walked away from both the show and the money, uh, suddenly and famously disappearing to Africa, and then staying away from the limelight for many years. And at the same time, At what, for many people, is the climax of the film, um, the Fugees reunite on stage to close the show. They had fractured seven years earlier after releasing their blockbuster breakthrough album The Score, and Lauryn Hill had achieved even greater success with her solo album the next year, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. But like Chappelle, the money, pressure, and fame seemed to break her too. Lauryn Hill never really released a proper follow-up album to that 1998 record, and she had kind of gone into exile herself in the years just prior to the concert. I don't know what's going through her head on stage in that film, but you can read or project all sorts of emotions into her demeanor and performance. You know, there's something a little heartbreaking about it, even as it's bringing all this obvious joy to the surprised crowd. It's a film that takes place a year and a half into the Iraq War, uh, weeks before the re-election of George W. Bush. And while there isn't that same overt political flavor you find in something like Wattstacks, uh, there are comments and asides throughout the movie that acknowledge the war. Uh, and between the anxieties about the state of the world, coupled with the, the more unspoken hidden anxieties about the pressures put on black entertainers and celebrities, uh, you know, the humor and the optimism that does come through in the film, uh, I think, feels more defiant than something like, um, you know, the Summer of Love vibes of Monterey Pop. And it feels just as grounded uh, by its own reality as something like Gimme Shelter, uh, but without, like, a tragedy robbing it of humor. And it is a very funny film. Uh, anyway, that's my, uh, that's my favorite concert film. So I'm looking forward to your episode. Thank you. And we're back. That was like a podcast wet dream. I don't know about you guys, but that was just absolutely amazing. Having basically Alan just wind the key and let him talk. He's an ideal, like you say, he's perfect. You just kind of point him in that direction and then just let him go. There's a reason he's teaching, because oh, I, yeah. just lear- I just learned a hell of a lot, I'm telling you yeah. right now. If he's doing classes online for just the general public, man, I'll sign up. Having said that, there already is the University of Alan Arkush. It's called Trailers from Hell. So if there's anyone out there who has not gone onto the uh, Trailers from Hell website, 
we urge you, not just Alan's stuff, but a whole bunch of other directors is Josh Olsen from the Movies That Made Me podcast and Joe Dante and... Everybody. The Trailers From Hell website, that's a national treasure as far as I'm concerned. Because, I mean, if you're not motivated to watch a lot of those films by just the discussion and everything that's said beforehand then I don't know what to say because everything that you see them talk about in trailers from hell, you're immediately going to want to go out and watch or either watch again. All right. So we're at the end of this gargantuan episode for episode 77 of C here. Tim, it's your pick. I'm going to hold out for a little while and uh, I'm going to make it a surprise. We'll announce it. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Keep an eye on the C here Facebook page. We'll provide details closer to time. If you want to get in contact with us, see here podcast, at gmail.com our facebook page facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast we're part of the pantheon network go to pantheonpodcasts.com follow us on instagram at see here podcast any number of ways listen to any of the uh, other wonderful podcasts on the pantheon podcast network i think we've pretty much covered it so all we can say is just go watch all the films that alan has gone and recommended please share this episode around this has just been so much fun for us of course we want lots of people to listen to all our shows but if you recommend nothing else please get them to listen to this episode that we did with Alan it was a blast for all of us you've got your homework kids now go out there and get her done alright until next time look after each other stay safe stay distanced wear a mask all the usual sort of stuff all the best cheers cheers see ya It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.